Uh, there's a class coming up called the Intermediate Leadership Class. If you guys want to sign up for that, it's on the third QR code right there on the seat back in front of you. Uh, make sure you do that. If you just like you're a leader now, and you're like, hey, I want to grow in my leadership, check that out. Uh, but let's, let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, last week, we started our first week of our study of the book of Romans. And so if you've missed any of that, you can go back to our website. Uh, you can go to YouTube. You can catch up on that. And then you're just one week behind, so it's not too late for that. Uh, but I really want to encourage you uh, during this series, show up every Sunday. And also, you can get a Romans journal. We have them out there that's got the scripture and then some blank spots so you can write it in. But I really want to encourage you either on your phone, through version or whatever, take lots of notes. And over the year plus that we go through the book of Romans, just see what God is teaching you, what God is telling you. Maybe you'll write down some prayers or something, and you can kind of journey with, uh, you know, looking behind to see what God has been doing. So don't miss that opportunity. But we're going to fire right up in Romans chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and go to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need a Bible. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. We have them in English and Spanish up front. We also have them out at Center Point. And then also there's version on your phone. You can download that. Click events. All stuff will pop up. Uh, but if you remember last week, and if you didn't, I'll tell you. Last week we said that this is a very deep theological book. Uh, it is really an expression of Paul, the writer, the author, his deep theological thinking inspired by God. It's super, super deep. So you're going to understand a bit of the mind of, of Paul as we walk through this. But before we get to the deep theological mind of Paul, I think what Paul wants to do in this beginning is to show you his heart. And I think that's important for us to hear that he wants us to take a look into his heart. And what we're going to do is we're going to get to see what motivates it sustains him in life and in ministry. And as we look at what motivates and sustains him, I want to give us two things today that motivates and sustains him. From that, I think that's what can motivate us as well in life and sustain us in life as well. Because here's what I know. Many of us coming here in many different ways on Sunday mornings. Some of you may be coming here dragging in here. Maybe you come in here, you feel like you don't measure up. Maybe you come in here and you have little to no desires for the things of God, the word of God, and the ways of Christ. Maybe right now you're just faking it until you make it, and you're like, I can't fake it anymore, so I'm not going to make it. Some of you come in here just like, man, eh, I'm okay. Some of you are like, I'm pretty good. No matter what, uh, I want you to see from the word, Paul's heart, just these two things that really help sustain him and motivate him in life and ministry. So are you ready? All right, uh, so this is going to be kind of teachy, and so it's going to be interactive. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions. You're going to give me a lot of answers. Sound good? Okay, number one, point number one, love the church. Love the church. Uh, Paul loved the church, which sounds like a lot of effort and not a lot of fun when you think about it, right? Like it just seems like a lot of effort to love the church and not a lot of fun, but oh no, uh, the, the church was life-giving to Paul. The people of the church, the potential of the church, the addition to the church, the discipleship of the church, the Christ forming to the church, the mission of the church, all that was so life-giving. That was fuel to his fire. We, we just had the, uh, our verses read to us today, but if you were to look back over those verses, and I'll put it up on the screen for you, I want you to hear what he says about the church. He says in verse 8, thank God for you. Verse 9, whom I serve with my spirit. Verse 9 again, without ceasing, I mention you. Verse 10, always in my prayers, the church is always on his mind. Verse 11, I long to see you. Verse 12, we, we want to mutually encouraged by each other's faith. faith. Verse 13, I often plan to come to you. Verse 14, I am obligated to you. Verse uh, 15, I am eager. That, my friends, sounds like a man who loves the church. Am I right? 
That, that's the heart of a pastor, the pastor loving his church. But that's also, listen, listen, that's also uh, one brother to other brothers and sisters, that we are to love each other. Why? Because when you love someone, it motivates you. Am I right? Have you ever loved someone? That love is, is motivational. It's food and fuel. So do you love the church? Well, let's see what Paul says. Verse 8, are you there? Are you there? Okay, verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So what is Paul's first word right there? In the, what is it? First. And so Paul says first. Now, if you look through the rest of the section, does Paul ever say second? No. Well, then what does he mean? He's saying first, meaning this is a priority, that praying for the church, praying for my brothers and sisters is a priority. Why? Because you pray for those you love. Am I right? He loves the church. What you pray about or the objects of your prayer says a lot about who you love. If not careful, if we look at a lot of our prayers, a lot of our prayers are about us which it says we love uh, ourselves the most. Now, it's okay to pray for yourself. I've, I've been around a lot of people. I've been a pastor for a long time, and people feel guilty for praying for themselves. You should pray for yourself, but make sure you're praying for other people as well. Would you please pray for your pastors and staff and leaders here at Grace Point Church? Please. Please? <laughs> I, I, I beg of you. Pray for us. Would you pray for one another? Pray that our love for Jesus would grow and grow and our desires for him would grow and grow. Pray that Jesus would be a priority of the people of Grace Point Church and not an option. Pray for the mission to make disciples and pray, as I said, for the leaders. Pray for individuals. Pray for your friends here. Pray for marriages. Pray for the children. Pray for the kids. Pray for the families. Pray against the enemy. Pray. You pray for who you love. Now, now, Paul says his prayer right here is very specific. If we look back to the text, he said it's a prayer of thanks. He's thanking God for these people. Why? He says they're being talked about all around the world. And side note, Grace Point Church, you may not know this, but people are talking about you all over the world. Uh, Carlos and Myra in El Salvador are watching us right now, and they're down there in El Salvador talking about Grace Point Church. And so your faith and your love of Jesus and love of them is being talked about all around the world. Now, when Paul says all around the world, it's a bit of an exaggeration there because he's not, you know, it's not reached all around the world. It's all around the known world at the time would be around, you know, Rome was kind of the center in the Mediterranean world there. But Paul's saying nonetheless that he is thankful for them. Small implication here. Are you a thankful person? Yes or no? Don't answer out loud. I'm just joking. <laughs> no. You ever, you ever been around a person that's not thankful? Hey, maybe for some of you, thankfulness is hard, and I want to be a good pastor, and I want to love you well. So for you, if it's, if it's very difficult being thankful, I want to tell you what you, potentially your besetting sin may be, because we all have kind of besetting sins. Some sins affect us in different ways than other people, but your besetting sin may be, I love you, may be pride. Like if you have a hard time being thankful and a lot of criticism and condemning and complaining, all that. It's potentially because of pride, because everything that good has happened to you, you'll think in your mind, I deserve it. I've earned that. I've worked hard for that. Like, I'm, I'm entitled to that. No, 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 no. Let's be thankful to the Let's be a thankful person. What Paul's showing us, that he's a thankful person, and he's thankful for the church because he loves the church. Let me keep going. Verse 9. He says, for God is my witness. Now, he's not making a vow here. Please don't hear Jesus in the past saying, hey, you let your yes be yes, your no, no. That's not what he's talking about. He's just saying, God is my witness, 
whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, and his son is Jesus, that without ceasing I mention you. He's saying, look, as God is my witness, I'm talking to God a lot about you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So if you remember from last week, Paul's never visited this church up to the point. Paul did not plant this church. And he's like, I am praying that God will allow some way, some opportunity for me to get to the church in Rome. And so what Paul is not saying right here, he's like, look, he's not saying I can't get to Rome, so maybe I'll do something for you when I arrive. No, he's doing something for them when he's not there as well. Meaning, just because we can't go somewhere doesn't mean we can't do something for brothers and sisters all around the world. Meaning you can be praying for Carlos and Myra in El Salvador. You can be praying for Arjuna in India. You can be praying for Karim in Turkey. You can be praying for Andrew in Ireland. You may never go over there and visit, or you may. we got mission trips coming up, but you can still do something. You don't have to wait. Now, the question is, did Paul ever get there? Well, history tells us about three years after he sent this letter to the church in Rome, he actually got there. Now, how did he get there? Well, He eventually made it to Rome uh, only after being mobbed, arrested, imprisoned, and having survived a shipwreck. Matter of fact, he went into Rome in handcuffs as a prisoner. I'm sure that's not what he had in mind when he was going there, but you never know what God wants to do and how he wants to do it. But nonetheless, when you love someone, you will endure anything to be with them. Am I right? Yeah? I want you to hear Paul's heart for the church. He loves Jesus and the gospel and the good news and loves, in light of that, the church so much he will endure everything. And now your question back to me is, what will he endure? Well, he's writing a letter to Timothy, which is kind of his uh, pastor in training. And he says this to Timothy in his second letter to him, 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. He says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David and preached in my gospel for which I am suffering. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel because of his love of Jesus, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure, what's that word? Everything for the sake of the elect. Now, what does the elect mean? It means the church. It means brothers, sisters in Christ. He's like, I'll endure everything for the church because I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll endure everything that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul loves the church. Love endures all. Didn't Paul say something about that in 1 Corinthians 13? Remember, that, like the, you know, the one you hear at every wedding? Yeah, he says something like that. Verse 11, he says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Question. Okay, question time. Don't answer but maybe. Who imparts spiritual gifts? Is it Paul? Here's your clue. No. God imparts spiritual gifts. What is Paul talking about? Paul is essentially saying here he wants to use his spiritual gift to encourage them and to strengthen them. And so his, I think he's part of his spiritual gifts are leadership and encouragement and teaching and training and, and the, you know, being able to tell the gospel. Now, when we hear that, we're like, yeah, that's right. Paul's a pastor. Paul's a leader. And the leaders are supposed to invest in the church. And it's kind of like a one-way street. And if not careful... We think that in the church, it's a one-way street of being invested into and being encouraged, meaning everyone up here, up here, me, at the stage, is supposed to encourage and invest in you, and then that's it, like a one-way street. But that's not it. Why? 
Because when you love someone, you contribute, not just consume. Am I right? You ever been married? You contribute, right? Because if it's just one-sided, it's just take, 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 take. It's kind of the same in, in the church as well. That we're all, every one of us are called not to just consume, but also to contribute as well. And Paul shows us in this text a great example. Look at the next verse. So in verse 11 is him pouring out to the church. Verse 12, he says, that is, almost like a correction to himself, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And Paul is basically, I think, Paul is counting on them to encourage him. He's counting on them to build him up as well. So, so hear me in this. Church, the gathering, the entity, the organization, the people is not all about consuming. Yes, there is consuming involved. Come and feast upon Jesus and his good news and his grace. Come get encouragement and teaching. Come get connected and love. But you are called to contribute to it all as, as well. I've heard a statement. I've been a pastor a long time where some people will say, I'm just not getting fed. I feel like I didn't get anything out of that. Perhaps the reason why is because you were supposed to put something into it. You were supposed to, supposed to give to it. See, this thing we do on Sunday is not a show. This is a gathering. That's why we don't call it a service. We call it a gathering because we are gathering together, and it's called the liturgy for the work of the people that we have work to do together. And the work that we do together is to build one another up for sure and to worship Jesus together. I've heard many people come and say this as well. Well, hey, you know what? I just don't feel like it's deep enough for me, so I don't get anything out of it because it's not deep enough. I've heard that. Um, and now my retort is always this. You remember the old song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? That's the deepest thing you'll ever know. Uh, there's a quote by the guy by the name of Chip Stam. He said this, and I'm like, I, this, this comes in my head every time I go visit another church. It says, the mature Christian is easily edified. Do you hear that? The mature Christian is, meaning I can go to a, a church gathering and you just tell me about Jesus and give me his word. I am like happy as a lark. I mean, I am super happy at that. But if not careful, we have a consumeristic mindset out of the church. And if we do, then the problem with the church is the problem with you. Because you are the church. There's this saying that I read years ago, and I took it and modified it, and eventually we're going to put it up on the wall somewhere in Grace Point Church. And if you've been around a while, I've said this before, but I love this. I want this to be our mantra, and here's how the saying goes. This is the body of Jesus. This is my church my family, my home. It is composed of people who need God's grace, just like me. It will be friendly if I am. It will do great works if I join in the work. It will make generous gifts to many causes if I am generous. It will bring, many, it will bring others into the family if I bring them. The seats will be full if I fill them. It will be a church of loyalty, love, faith, honesty, joy, and service if I who make it what it is am filled with these things. Therefore, with God's help, I dedicate myself to the task of being all these things I want my church to be. Imagine if we lived by that. See, you need the church, and the church needs you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of Jesus, you worship Jesus exclusively, the Bible tells us that you have spiritual gifts. 
And our spiritual gifts are not to be hoarded or to lay dormant. They are to be used for the building up of other people. So the question is, my question for you is, are you building up the church? Who are you encouraging? Who are you investing in? Who are you helping right here? Some of you say, well, spiritual gift. I need to go take a spiritual gift test. No, you don't. Just go look for an opportunity. I don't know where the opportunities are. Go to the family center, please. <laughs> go to the production booth back there, please. Go out there and greet or do different. Like, there's so many opportunities. Don't miss those opportunities. We all need to be encouraged. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm here to encourage you. You're here to encourage me. Why? Because Paul loves the church. Verse 13, still with me? I feel like I got handcuffs on with this mic. I'm like, ah. Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brother, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul, again, is expressing that he, he's waiting for God to make a way. He really wants to go. He talks about reaping a harvest. Perhaps, perhaps he's thinking back on some things that Jesus says. If you remember in Mark 4, uh, verse 20, where he talks about the sower and reaping a harvest. He talks about the different, uh, you know, 30 and 60 fold and 100 fold, maybe that harvest. Uh, Matthew, or Jesus said in Matthew 9 as well, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. I think Paul is coming to Rome looking for that harvest of encouragement and evangelism. I think that's what he's talking about. Verse 14. Then he says this. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, we need to discuss what he means by obligation, but I think first we need to get past this Greeks to barbarians, wise to foolish, because when we hear the word barbarians, that's not a very positive term, is it? Like, what, why, why did Paul say that? What is, what is going on there? I think Paul, it's a very cultural word that was used back then. I think what Paul's doing, he's, he's kind of communicating extremes and being a Gentile, a non-Jewish person. So he says in the Greeks, he's talking about the, the, the cultural uppity-uppities, the, the, uh, the highfalutin, if any of you from the South know what I'm talking about, the like, you know, the upper echelon, and he said barbarians, those would be the, the not people on top, they would be the people on the bottom. I think the phrasing he's using there, and then he does another contrast of the wise and the fool, that may be intellectual and educational. Either way, we believe what Paul's expressing here, he's saying, look, I'm here for every person, every walk of life uh, of Gentile. Uh, he's basically all the people of Rome. He sees himself obligated to the Greeks and to the Gentile, no matter if they're rich, poor, uh, educated or not educated, high or low. doesn't matter. I'm obligated to them. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he's obligated? Another word used in that wheelhouse is the word I'm indebted to. He says, I'm indebted to the Greeks. I'm indebted to the Gentiles. Why would he say that? Like, does he owe them money? Like, what, is, what, what does he owe them? Uh, Tim Keller, I was reading on this. Tim Keller is a pastor, uh, or was, I think he's retired now. Anyway, he writes a lot of books. He said this. He says, Paul's never met the Roman church, far less the greater population of Rome. So in what sense is he in debt to them? It is, it, it is illustrative to think about how I can be in debt to you. First, you have, to, you have lent me $100, and I am in debt to you until I pay it back. You get it, right? You loan me $100, bucks, i am in debt to you, until, you pay, until I pay you back. But second, someone else may have given me $100 to pass on to you, and I am in debt to you until I hand it on. It is in the second sense that Paul is obligated to everyone everywhere. 
God has shared the gospel with him, Paul, but God has also commissioned him to declare it to others. So Paul owes people the gospel. Sounds great, right? Question for you. Do you have the gospel? Have you trusted Jesus? Are you saved? You have the gospel, right? That does not feel convincing. Do you have the gospel? (laughs) Then you are indebted to those who do not. That means you owe those family members, you owe those friends, you owe those co-workers, you owe those fellow classmates, you owe those neighborhood neighbors, you owe them the gospel. Why? Because you have received it and God has told you, hey, go pay that out elsewhere and tell other people about me. And so we are, in de- imagine how that, would, how that would kind of unlock our minds and hearts to where we would almost be risky and, dare I say, foolish to go to people and share the gospel with them because we have received the gospel and now we're indebted to, to give that gospel to them as well. Imagine what that would look like. We owe. Have you ever thought about that? You see that neighbor acting a fool, you're like, no, oh, him the gospel. You have that boss that is like the worst boss ever, worse than Michael Scott. You're like, ah, oh, owe them the gospel. It's life-changing. Verse 15, he says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says he is eager. It's like every fiber in him is ready to preach the gospel before you. Let me just tell you a little bit uh, of what goes on inside of me before I come up here. I am an anxious, nervous wreck before I get up here. And not like nervous in the sense of like, uh, I I don't know what I'm going to say because I've got words for days. Ask my wife. Um, But, like, um, you ever ever been to a rodeo? You ever seen a rodeo? I'm not the clown, but you ever seen a rodeo? You know what a rodeo is? Okay. You ever seen the bull in the chute all pinned up in there? And it's just, like, it's just, like, making all these snorting noises. It's it's just, like, struggling on the inside. And then what what happens when they open the gate? It starts jumping around acting a fool. That's me. Uh. I just can't, I can't, I mean, I can't wait to share the gospel with you. I can't wait to read over God's word and to worship over God's word with you all. Like, it's one of my greatest things. And this is what Paul says, because he loves the church so much. He's like, I'm eager. I can't wait to share that gospel with you. Now, some of you are like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, I thought those people were believers of Jesus. They're Christians there. Why is Paul sharing the gospel with them? I thought you, once you heard the gospel and trusted Jesus, you went on to finer things. No, you never move past the gospel. Again, Tim Keller, super smart guy, he said this. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians, and then Christians mature by trying harder to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. We need to hear the gospel. One of my favorite things about gathering together as a church is because I can always know faithfully from up front, through the liturgy, through the songs, through the preaching, you're going to hear the gospel. I love sitting right over there, and when we're singing, I can hear people behind me singing beautifully. That good news, that gospel, it makes me smile. It brings joy to me. Why? I need to hear the gospel. The gospel is still transforming me. And when you love someone and you believe the gospel brings life, you'll want to bring life to them as well. Even as a believer and follower of Jesus, you want them to have more life, and so you want to share the gospel with them over and over. Isn't that great? Paul loved the church. 
question. Don't answer out loud. Do you love the church? Do you really love the church? Because if you say you love the church, then I, I'm going to do this thing that you're going to hate. I'm going to hate this. You're going to hate this. I might hate it too, but you're going to hate this. Do you love the church? And my follow-up is, prove it. Prove it. Do you, do you, does gathering, is that important to you? That Like you'll drop whatever because, hey, we're all getting together. And we're going to sing about Jesus and learn about Jesus. The opportunity to serve one another, the opportunity to, to spend time and resources here, the opportunity to build one another up and to be a part of something greater than yourself, prove it. Showing up on Sunday is great. I'm glad you do that. But what if you were to really love the church? I've heard some people say, stop dating the church and actually love the church. <laughs> like, love, be committed to her. Paul loved the church, and that was transformational in his life. I think that's, that sustained him through hard days. That helped him get to the end. Number one, love the church. Number two, we made it to the second point, and I've got a little bit of time left. Number two, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. You're like, man, this guy's deep. <laughs> love the church. Believe the gospel. That's it. Like, believe the gospel, right? Believe the gospel right now. And believe the gospel when you go home. And believe the gospel tonight when you go to bed. And believe the gospel in the morning when you wake up. And believe the gospel when you go about your day and you go to your work or you go home, wherever you're at. Just believe the gospel over and believe the gospel on repeat. Look at verse 16 and 17. Let's take a little time to work through this. Verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, he's quoting Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Believe the gospel. Now, I would be a fool to sit up here and keep saying the word gospel, 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 and us not all be on the same page when it comes to the word gospel. So let's take uh, and have a little gospel 101 to make sure we're all on the same page when we say gospel because everyone is saying the word gospel now, and I've said gospel at least 20 times in this one sentence. Here we go. What is the gospel? Well, gospel comes from the original Greek word, and the original Greek word, we'll have it up on the screen for you, is euangelion. Euangelion, okay? Say it with me. Euangelion. It's not on the screen. Euangelion. It means gospel. And if you were to look at that original Greek word, it starts with E-U. And so it's where we get the word ew. <laughs> and when you translate that into the English, it's where we get words like euphoria. What does euphoria mean? It's a good feeling, right? It's a euphoric feeling. Or eulogy. What does the word eulogy mean? Should mean a really good message during a funeral, right? I mean, a really good, you know, saying good things about the, the deceased. It means good. So the, the beginning of the word is good, okay? Got it, got it, got it. Now, what about the rest of it? Angelion. What does the word angelion mean? What does the word, when I say angelion, what does that sound like to you? What someone said over here, say it again loud. Okay, okay, uh, someone, I heard it. Angels. Okay, angels, angels. Um, remember the definition or at least the job role of an angel in the Old Testament? Remember what that was? It was one word, starts with M. What is it? Messenger. Ha ha, here we got it. Okay, so you have good and you have uh, engaleon, which would be messenger or message. 
And so, good news, the original word means good message. Or another way we say it is good news. Got it? Okay, so where do we see uh, good news in the Old Testament? Good news was simply uh, used in the Old Testament a lot, uh, our good message. Uh, typically in war times, they would be going to war, they'd be battling, and people would be on edge in their city thinking, I wonder how the battle's going. And someone would run to them and bring them good news or bad news or good news, right? And so even in Isaiah, we see this, and then later on, it's quoted in Romans, and it says this in Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet, that would be the marathon runner, the feet of him who brings what? Gospel. Who publish peace and bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who says, Zion, your God reigns. And so just let me set the scene for you. Uh, in olden times, back in the old days there, you'd have a, a watchtower in the city, and in the watchtower was a watchman. And the watchman, when they were in battle, would sit all day long and look as far as they could see, waiting for one of the runners to come. And all of a sudden, they would see the marathoner sprinting towards the city, getting ready to give them news. Are they winning the battle? Did they win? Or are they losing the battle? Did they lose? And so the watchmen, they were trained in how to um, interpret the running style of the marathoner to see if it was good news or bad news. And so if the, um, if the marathoner was running and they were doing the survival shuffle, if you don't know what that is, uh, like after you eat Chipotle, like you got to get somewhere quick, if you know what I mean. <laughs> they would look at that and be like, uh-oh, that's bad news. Make sense? Don't make me act it out. Um, but, I mean, if they're like, was it Jackie Joyner Kersey out there, and them like, whoo, they're just running really fast, they're like, oh, it's good news. Like, like we're, we're, we're winning, or we have won. And so they would say, hey, they're bringing good news. Gospel, makes sense? When you fast forward, this is going to, it's going somewhere, I swear. When you fast forward, and you get to the New Testament, the word gospel is used in three different ways, and they matter. The first way the word gospel is used is the capital G form, gospel of the genre of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, okay? So we'll say the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John. The, the, you know, you see what I'm saying? That's the first way that we use the word gospel, so just make sure you understand that. The second way you would see the word gospel used would be right before Jesus goes to the cross, he starts preaching about the good news of the kingdom of God is coming, the kingdom of God is hand. And so the good news that he was talking about was the, was, the God, was the kingdom of heaven. Even when you see John the Baptist baptizing, preaching, and all that, he's talking about the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Makes sense? Got it, got it, got it. After the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit to begin the church, in Paul's writings you start to see the gospel used differently. The gospel is always about Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and him sending the Spirit and his impending return. And so the third definition is what we see when he's talking about gospel right here. And so the gospel has an object. The object of the gospel is always... <laughs> The gospel, the object of the gospel is always, there you go. Yeah. So if you're somewhere and you're like, hey, Jesus changed my life. I, I used to be a dud and now I'm a stud and like everything's amazing in my life now. and It's all great. What you've done there is you have shared your testimony, which is a good thing. You have not shared the gospel. 
You can talk about the effects of Jesus in your life, and you should. That's amazing. Way to tell your story, your testimony. But when you say, I'm sharing the gospel, when you share the gospel, you share about Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, the spirit. You share about all that Jesus has come to do and all that he has done. That, my friends, is the gospel. Now, are we all on the same page? I can take another 20 minutes and blow through this if you want. Don't tempt me. So now, when you get to verse 16, Paul does something really interesting. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's all that stuff about Jesus, right? Not about him, all about Jesus. Got it? Why does he say that, though? Why does he say, I'm not, a, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Here's a thought. Here's a thought. Whenever you're tempted to be ashamed of something, you usually say, I'm not ashamed of it. Hear me out. Uh, if you were to get around me and we're having a conversation, you start talking about the dark, I would look at you and say, oh, yeah, I'm not afraid of the dark. Why did I do that? Because I'm tempted to be afraid of the dark, and typically I am. Or if I were to start telling you about a television show, you know, and I would say, hey, I'm not ashamed that I used to watch Sister Wives. It's because I've been tempted to be ashamed that I used to watch Sister Wives. It's a true story. I don't watch it anymore. It's garbage. They all split up. So here's my thought. Here's my thought. Paul must have been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. And, and hear me out. I don't think he fell to temptation, so I don't think there's any sin there. I don't think there's any cowardice there. But I think he was tempted. Uh, why? Because of the gospel. Like, uh, hear me out. Please follow this train of thought with me. Go to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, then we're going to bounce to 1 Corinthians 1. And I think there's a temptation even for Paul to be ashamed of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimonies of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Huh. That's interesting. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. That's the gospel, though. It's like really wise. But in demonstration of the spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We see what Paul's doing right here. Paul's like, hey, don't get hung up on me. I'm not awesome. The gospel's awesome. But it's interesting. He kind of has these little, little bit of a waffly words there. Now go back to 1 Corinthians 1.18. I think here's the reason why. If you backtrack, he says this. For the word of the cross, which I think is sh he's using shorthand for the gospel, the word of the cross, the gospel is folly. Now, is folly a positive word or a negative word? Every time, right? No one says, hey, look at the folly of that guy. No one says it like, you know, it's negative. So the word of the cross, the gospel is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he's saying this, that the gospel is one of two things. It's for some people, those who are perishing, I mean, those who do not believe the gospel, those who do not have the spirit, those who do not have eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart to understand, it is foolishness. It's, it's, it just sounds super dumb. Like, it's just, like, awful. Like, it doesn't make any sense whatever. To those who are being saved, oh, it's the power of God, obviously. Obviously. You ever thought about how offensive and foolish the gospel sounds to people who don't believe it? You ever thought about it? Some of you have been Christians so long, you're like, never thought about that. Well, let me help you. We believe, Christian, that there is one God, but he's in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, though, equal one God. 
We believe that human hearts are inherently evil and wicked, like, like you know, straight from the package, you know, like right born, that we are sinful people. We believe that single mo- the single most important week in human history was Jesus going to the cross, dying, and then three days later coming back to life. That Jesus went and atoned for our sin. He made one sacrifice that would cover our past, present, and future sins. We, we, we believe that. We believe that, that God raised him from the dead, not spiritually, not metaphorically, but in real time, like a real resurrection. We believe that. We believe that Jesus is Lord of all things. Last week we learned that we believe Jesus is master and that we are his slave. We believe that being born again is a real experience because the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer. We, we don't believe that the church is some kind of society with Victorian morals or something like that. But we believe that we are brothers and sisters made up of the redeemed people of God. At the return, we believe that because Jesus is returning, every person will bow their knees and confess that Jesus is Lord. Every Jewish person, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, Scientologist, get this, Republican, Democratic, all of them will. And we believe there will be a final judgment where he will separate the sheep from the goat. And I don't mean the greatest of all time. But, and then some will be perishing forever in hell, and the rest will be in eternal glory with him in heaven. And how's he going to do it? He's going to return in the sky on a horse. Do you hear it? Or is that just me? That, that, that is offensive. That is offensive. That, that, is, that is foolishness for those who are not being saved. Look, people are like, that's just, that's backwards thinking, right? Like, you can't believe that. And we as believers are like, we absolutely believe it. It is the power of God for salvation. We have experience. So I can understand Paul has a little bit of like, like temptation, not saying he's giving to it, to be ashamed of the gospel. Why? The gospel will cause offense because it reveals us as having a need that we cannot meet. And Paul is, is, is writing to the church in Rome, and Rome is the capital of the world at that time period. Rome is the most sophisticated place. Rome is like the New York City and L.A. all wrapped in one to all the socialites and all those people there. And he knows what he's getting ready to walk into, and he's reminding by the Spirit and himself and everyone else, hey, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, question for you, don't answer out loud. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Are you ashamed of the gospel? Because when it comes to the gospel, you have two options. Abandon the gospel out of embarrassment or embrace the gospel with its shame because it will come with shame. There's a biography on the great evangelist George Whitfield. Do you ever get a chance? Read some church history. It's really good. George Whitfield, great evangelist. So he's out in the fields one day and he's uh, preaching and there's a play going on. And the, and the, the theater, the play was like, that was the jam back then. Everybody like lived and died by the theater. Well, he was going out to preach and all the actors and actresses all came out to check it out. And there's a story told about him and it goes like this. As he, George Whitfield, to preach the gospel, as he mounted a field pulpit, thousands of people left the player's booth, which would be the theater, to hear Whitfield's performance. The angry entertainers that are angry followed them, not to listen, but to cost the itinerant, basically to ridicule him, to haggle him. Soon a hail of stone, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat. Time out. Uh, I love you. Not a fan of cats. Throw a dead cat at me. We're going to fight. I may lose, but I will not go down without swinging. That's a dead cat. So pieces of dead cat pelted the preacher. It gets better. A clown climbed up on a man's shoulder and tried to slash Whitfield with a whip. 
Every time he swung at Whitfield, however, the clown tumbled down instead of hitting his target. Another clown, because, you know, there's lots of clowns there. Another clown <laughs> climbed a tree close to Whitfield's pulpit and shamefully exposed his nakedness before all the people, eliciting a, cho a chorus of hoots and laughter. Every attempt to silent Whitfield failed, and he went on preaching, praying, and singing for three hours. That, my friends, is a man who's not ashamed of the gospel. We only have two options. Abandon the gospel of embarrassment or embrace the gospel with its shame. That's what Paul did. Remember what Jesus says? He said this in Mark 8, 38. He said, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He said in another place, If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. I think Jesus means that. I really do. And then that's why Paul says, back, go back to Romans. Romans 1.16, says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation. So the gospel is not simply talking about the power of God, in which it does. It contains the power of God, that God actually uses the gospel to save people. Uh, Michael Byrd commenting on it, he says this. He says, the gospel is a speech act in that it not only announces the way of salvation, but actualizes salvation and those who hear it with faith. The gospel manifests God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-uber-mega-grace power that results in salvation. That's what this gospel is. And so when we share the gospel, we do not have to have any confidence in ourselves at all. All we need to do is have confidence in the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. Uh, let me try this illustration, and hopefully it'll change your life. Here we go. You ever, you ever had a pepper? Like a jalapeno pepper? Habanero pepper? Ghost pepper? You ever held one in your hand? You're like, huh, it's cold. It's room temperature. No big deal. You ever bit into one? Life-changing, isn't it? See, when we hear the word gospel and think about the gospel, I mean, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just some words and all that. But when it is taken in, it has the explosive power of transformation. It's, and you know this. If, if you're in Christ, you know this. And so, like, why would we not trust it for other people as well? That is, it is the power of God for salvation. I mean, that, this power of God for salvation, salvation means it changes people's minds, hearts, their life, their understanding of everything that happens. Most of all, it has the power to do what no other power on earth has to do. You know what it does? It reconciles you to God. It causes us to be adopted. It guarantees us the spirit and guarantees a spot in heaven with Jesus himself. Isn't that good news? This is what the gospel does. Now, all that is required to experience this power of God through the gospel is what? It says it in verse 16. What is it? What is it? Anybody? Verse 16? Belief. Just believe it. This is, this is the first explicit statement that the only way to receive the gospel and its power is through belief, through, through, through faith. Faith is the channel that connects us to the power of God to receive this good news. And Paul right here, he's saying that the gospel's power is boundless and boundaried at the same time. He says in the text that it's for everyone. It came to the Jews first and to the Gentiles after that. It's for everyone and anyone, yet he also sets a boundary on it. It has a limit on it. It says it's only for those who believe, which means that takes away universalism. That means not everyone is saved. You must have belief 
faith in Jesus through this good news of the gospel. Make sense? Question is, do you believe the gospel? Is this, is this what you've trusted to save you? This good news of Jesus coming and living and dying and resurrecting and ascending. Is this what you believe? Give me a nod. Okay. Make sure you still. Verse 17. Oh, yeah. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does he mean by this? The righteousness of God. Three ways to understand the righteousness of God. I'll give you all three. Number one, the, the, the righteousness belongs to God, meaning God is righteous, meaning he, he, he's right. Number two, the righteousness of God means that God acts right. That means God always does what is right. God never does what is wrong. God always does what is right. Number three, the imputable righteousness of God. Oh, big word. Imputable just means he gives those who trust him his complete and total righteousness. That means when he looks at you and your record, you have the righteousness of God. That means your record is squeaky clean. It looks great. It's a great resume you got there. It's not because of you. It's not because of what you've done. And you may even still act unrighteous in which we do. But it means when God looks at you, you have his righteousness. So now, back to the text in verse 17, which of the three is he talking about? And the answer is all of them. He's talking about all of them. That, that, that it's about the righteousness of God, that God always acts right, and that God imputes his righteousness. And when you hear that, and when you hear this first, us modern thinkers, we're like, yeah, I believe that. I have the imputed righteousness of God because God always does right, and he is right. And so we're very modern minds, and we believe this, am I right? So let's make a contrast. Let's contrast our modern minds to, let's say, the 1500s, medieval times. That sounds like a good place. The bygone days of old when times were archaic, and of course they were not as sophisticated in thought as us, right? Well, there was this thought that the righteousness of God was seen as a righteousness that God possessed and demands. There was this very influential uh, theologian by the name of Gabriel Beale, uh, he summed it up, our response to God's righteousness, in a Latin phrase that I will not say because it sounds like I'm trying to do a Harry Potter stunt, and it's like, nope, not doing that. And so um, he says this phrase, do what is in you. And so when we respond to God's righteousness, what this theologian, Gabriel Bill, was saying, he says this, do what is in you. That is, do your best, do what you can do, and God will complete the rest of it for you. Because that, in that day, the thought was God infused his grace into all of our spiritual activity to when I read my Bible, when I gave some money, when I served at church, especially when I took the sacraments with either being baptized or taking the communion, then God was infusing grace into that. And everywhere that I messed up, all the holes and all the gaps, God would fill those in for me as well. And so I need to work as hard as I can, spiritually speaking, and then God will take care of the rest and then I would be saved. Can you believe those unsophisticated people back in that day would actually believe that? Wild, right? Wait a minute. Is, that's modern Christianity right there. Like we're all, we all think that at times. We may never say it out loud because we're sensible enough not to. But we think that at times, like, I'm going to do my, my best, and by golly, God, he'll just fill in the rest for me. But I'm, he knows I'm working hard for him, right? Here's the problem. Here's the problem with Bill's thought. Do what is in you. 
What is in you, you cannot please God. Work as hard as you want, try as you may, apart from a relationship with Christ, you and I cannot please God. We, we, we cannot. We don't have the ability to do it. Now, I feel like you're bristling against that a little bit with these looks on your faces right now, and you don't believe me. Well, go over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me show you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. <laughs> Angie told me, I was telling her about this message. She's like, you're really going to come across as a smart aleck. I'm like, I'm, I'm trying not to. If I am, I'm sorry. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were, what's the word? Okay, we can stop there. What can dead people do? I mean, you're alive, physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, the Bible says you're dead in your trespass and sin, and once you once walk, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So if we follow medieval thought by Beale, in which I think most Christians today do, what is in you, do what you can, is nothing more than just sin. That's all we can do. Something must happen to us first, outside of us, because dead people can do nothing. What is that? Look at verse 4 in Ephesians 2. But God. I mean, we could just pray and go home on that one. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is where we get the theological term regeneration. And I love that word, regeneration. Uh, it's where the Bible term uses uh, born again. You must be born again. You must be, there must be regeneration here. See, the gospel is not work and let God fill in the gaps. The, the salvation of the gospel he's talking about here is not that we do what we can, but that God does what we cannot do. We can't save ourselves. And so we place our faith in him through his grace by Jesus Christ. Do you see the phrasing, the righteous shall live by faith, cannot mean that God grants life and eternal life to the moral achiever who is trying. It assumes that God keeps his promises and redeems his people by imputing his righteousness in us who believe and trust him by faith. Does that make sense? That's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21. We're getting somewhere. He says, for our sake he made him, Jesus, to be what? Sin. Who knew no sin? He was sinless. But he took our sin. We imputed our sin to him, if you will. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. You are, you have the righteousness of God. And then he quotes Habakkuk. Verse 17, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Why does he quote Habakkuk? In that time, God's people we're under assault by the pagans around them. And Habakkuk's like, God, you've promised us that you're going to be with us. God, you promised that you're going to save us. God, you promised all these things. And Habakkuk's just kind of freaking out. And Habakkuk 2, 24 says, 2, 2 through 4 says this, And the Lord answered me. So God answered Habakkuk. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. Remember the runner, the good news? For still the vision awaits at a point in time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. The promise of God will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. Does God seem slow sometimes? Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And that's why Paul quotes that. that the power of the gospel, you being saved, 
it's not really by the strength of your faith. It's by faith in the faithfulness of God that he will fulfill all of his promises, that you have a right standing before God because all that Jesus has done. And that's why point number two is believe the gospel. But if not careful, the average person could care less about that, about being right before God. The ultimate good in the world we live today, and unfortunately with Christians sometimes, the ultimate good is no longer being right with God, but being right with self, believing in self. It's hard to do anything wrong with, when self-expression is the supreme good and the God of our land. Meaning, as long as I am true to myself and I'm being my true self, then I am righteous because I am being my true self and I'm living out my true self and being true to self. I don't know if you remember last week I talked about that master and slave situation. This thinking is just slavery to self and the whims of our culture and popularity is that we would care more about ourselves and more about being right to ourselves and being right with God. We church it up at times with self-help, self-care, me time. We even call it the pursuit of the balanced life, which often means I want to serve multiple masters, me being the number one. But I would say we need less self-expression, less balance, and we need more trust, dare I say, faith, that Jesus is our master. We are his slave. That we are called to love what he loves and believe what he says and actually live that out. And when we do believe the gospel of Jesus, that's where we find freedom. That's when we really do find the true self, our true identity in Christ. That's when we start to find peace, peace with God and begin to have peace with others. And that's where we understand how relationships work and marriages and parenting and friendships and all that. That's, that's where we get peace and contentment and find life. How do we do that? How do we sustain that? How does that get us to the end? I think like Paul, number one, love the church. Number two, I think it's believe the gospel. I got three questions. I got to get out of here. Number one, how or where do I not love the church? How or where do I not love the church? Maybe there's areas in your life that you're just not loving the church. How do you not love the church? Number two, it's not are you ashamed of gospel, but number two, where am I ashamed of the gospel? And that goes along with where do I fail in temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? I'm going to leave those on the screen. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to do communion a little different today. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to worship over your word with my brothers and my sisters and my friends. I know even as Paul said that your word cannot be bound, even by my own foolishness or lack of rhetorical skills. And I pray that your word, as you say, will not return empty, but it will have its effect. God, may each and every one of us here today be lovers of the church. You bought it with your blood. We are a part of it. As we love the church, may we love it, shepherd it, care for it well. I pray you'd call people out from the sidelines, call them into the game. And God, for all of us, would you help us to believe the gospel? For brothers and sisters in here, would you help us just to believe the gospel? There are so many areas we're ashamed, even of ourselves. We want to be cool. We want to be liked. Or we want something else to give us life. And so for that reason, we're ashamed. Father, forgive us. 
Help us to say in the words of Paul that it is the power of salvation in our life and for others. Help us be indebted to others of that good news. As you're doing your work today, Jesus, we trust you in all ways. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.